All right, well, um, throughout the history of the, the, uh, the church, there have been plenty of Christian martyrs. I mean, the, the numbers have got to be in the millions for sure. And um, just want to tell you this morning about one famous one. Uh, his, man, his, man is the, his name is Polycarp. <laughs> the man's name is Polycarp is what I, I meant to say here. He was a, an apost- uh, a disciple of the Apostle John. Like even if you look at the dates in which he was... Um, in which he was alive there, it says 69 to 156. And we know the Apostle John died somewhere around 90, 95 A.D. And so they would have, you know, overlapped. He would have, Polycarp would have been a young man. John would have been an older man um, at that time. Um, and this is the same John who wrote the Bible, wrote uh, Revelation, um, John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Polycarp knew him personally and was discipled by him. As a result, Polycarp had much respect in the, uh, in the early church. Um, are we okay sound-wise? I just feel a lot of... Are we okay sound-wise? Just I feel a lot of echo here, so I, I don't know. Um, as a result, uh, um, Polycarp was very respected in the, the community. He was a leader of the church in Smyrna, by the way. You just think about Smyrna, one of the... The things that was Jesus said to the church of Smyrna is to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And indeed, that's what Polycarp was. He was faithful unto death. He was 86 years old when the police came uh, to his door to arrest him, and they were armed, as police normally are uh, in those days, with swords and clubs and knives and armor and and everything, they came to arrest Polycarp, but Polycarp was armored with prayer. He knew they were coming. He could have escaped, but he chose not to. He chose to submit himself to the will of the Lord. He said, God's will be done. When the police came and knocked at his door, Polycarp came, greeted the police, welcomed them in, and then uh, called for food and, and drink to be given them. And then he requested that he could uh, pray for an hour before he went away with them, and I'm sure they had food right there before them, and they were very satisfied with that. Okay, we eat, and you pray. That's wonderful uh, agreement that we have here. And uh, so they agreed, and he stood, and he prayed, not for one hour, but for two hours. And uh, just, he was so full of grace, and, and so praying unto the Lord, that those who, re- re- who arrested him really regretted that they had come to, to arrest such a godly old man. Well, when he finished praying, he went with these officers into the arena where he would face his death. And so the arena is a place that's just, you know, filled with lots of people looking for the entertainment in those days. And the entertainment in those days was to see Christians die. And so there he was standing before the crowds in the arena. And Polycarp is looking right up there at the proconsul. And the proconsul... Uh, on hearing that he was indeed Polycarp, he tried to persuade him to apostatize. He said, um, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, down with the atheists. So, in other words, the, the Christians were the atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. And so the proconsul was t- telling Polycarp, say, down with the atheists. And Polycarp looked grimly at the heathen multitude in the stadium, and he looked around, 
and all these people out there. And he said, down with the atheists. Speaking about everyone. It's kind of spitting in his face, if you will. And then the, the proconsul continued on. and says, swear, reproach Christ, and I will set you free. And Polycarp says, 80 and 6 years I have served him. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul just continued. He says, I have wild animals and will throw them at you if you don't repent. Polycarp says, call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I'll be glad, though, to change from evil to righteousness. And the proconsul said, if you despise animals, well, then you'll be burned. And he said, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and then is extinguished. But you know nothing of the coming fire of the judgment of eternal life reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? He says, bring on whatever you want. And at that point, they, he ordered that they would prepare this bundle of sticks. There's a post in the ground. They, they got these sticks around the, uh, the place where he would be burned. Some soldiers came and, and put him right there with the stake. They were, they, were, they were close to nailing him to the stake. And, and, and he said, leave me as I am. For he that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me not to struggle without the help of your nails. So they simply bound him with his hands behind his back, distinguished like a ram chosen from a, a great flock for sacrifice, ready to be an acceptable offering to God. So he looked to heaven and he prayed. And he prayed these words, O Lord God Almighty, the God of your Father and beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and of all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice to you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for these things. I bless you, glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. And having prayed thus, the, the fire was lit, and it blazed furiously, and yet Polycarp was not consumed. Those who saw that the, the fire was sort of around him, but never really consumed him. And um, those who saw, saw Polycarp in here said he didn't look like burnt flesh, like most of those who were burnt at the stake did. Like he didn't turn char black. Instead, he turned this golden brown, just like baked bread is what they saw him to be. And eventually, when the proconsul saw that he could not be consumed with the fire, he commanded the executioner to come and execute him with the dagger. And Polycarp breathed his last and received the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. And Polycarp was simply one of many martyrs who have been martyred for their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this morning we have a privilege, as we look at the Bible, the Word of God this morning, hearing the story of the first Christian martyr. That is, Stephen is his name. His story is told in Acts Chapter 6 and 7, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them and turn them, turn there. We're introduced to Stephen in the middle of the chapter. Um, he is initially mentioned in verse 5 as one of the seven men to, to serve tables. 
freeing up the apostles so that they can devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Um, soon after that, we, we find him in his ministry and we find him hated then, accused of blasphemy. We find in chapter 7, the longest sermon in the book of Acts, is his sermon is a, really a defense um, of these accusations that came upon him. And then he ends, we end in chapter 7 with his death, a, a martyr's death. Now what we know about Stephen is, is only a, a little. We know, verse 3, that he met these qualifications of being of good repute, full of spirit, and full of wisdom. But now, beginning in verse 8, we'll find out a little bit more about him uh, as we look at those who accuse him as crime um, that made him worthy of death. Next week, we'll look at chapter 7, but this week, we merely look at um, his accusation. My message this morning is entitled, The Accusation of Stephen, because that's really what, what comes out of verses 8 through 15. So let's read it together. Here we go. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face. His face was like the face of an angel. My name's Steve. I hope I have the face of an angel today. Well, my first word, working through this text, I just have six words just to kind of give us a head um, as we work through the, this narrative here. Uh, verse, verse 8 describes the ministry, the ministry of Stephen. Um, not only was he one of the men who was chosen to oversee the tables and to serve the, the widows in that manner, but he also had quite a ministry as well. Verse 8 describes it, says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is a summary statement of, of Stephen in his ministry, his gifting and his ministry. His gifting, we see that he's full of grace and power. You add that to the qualities of verse 3 that says that, G, that Stephen was full of the, the spirit and full of wisdom and full of grace and full of power. That's quite a man. Right? To be full of the spirit, the Holy Spirit was in him, guiding him in all that he did and all that he said. He, he possessed great wisdom. That is the ability to, to see around him, to discern what is true, what is right, and the ability then to walk in right ways. He was full of grace, his kindness and mercy. And tact and charm. Stephen was full of great power. In this context, it wasn't political power. It wasn't power to exert his will to get others to serve him. It was power to do wonders and signs that you see right there in verse 8. And it's difficult actually to know what these wonders and signs were. Uh, but if you go back to chapter 12, in fact 5 rather, in verse 12, we see these same words. Almost an exact parallel of verse 
chapter 6, verse 8. We see that in chapter 5, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Here are signs and wonders being regularly done. You say, okay, what, what does that mean? We get a clue of it in verse 15 and 16. So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and all were healed. And we can only assume that what what Stephen was doing was these signs and wonders, the same sorts of signs and wonders that the apostles were doing. Healing, helping the sick, curing those who were sick, casting out demons. And we can only assume that his healing ministry was just as exhaustive as the apostles' healing ministry was. All who were being brought were healed. If you look at the end of verse 16, and they were all healed. That's the apostolic healing ministry, the power to heal everyone. I wish I had the power to do that today. To heal Heather fully. To heal Andy fully. And those who have illnesses, I'd love to do that. But they were all healed, is what Stephen was able to do. And here was the, the ministry of Stephen, right? A kindness and mercy and healing those coming to him. It's amazing, though, that in the midst of this kind healing ministry, there was some opposition against him, and that's what I'm calling dispute. We see that word come up at the end of verse 9. It says this in verse 9. He says, um, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilician Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. There you see it, right, right, right there. This is a dispute. This is argument, debate, right back and forth. Stephen was saying one thing, and they disagreed, and they were saying something else. It's quite a, a list of people lined up against Stephen. It's like one against the many. You, you, have, you have people from the synagogue of the freedmen, and you have four other locations from Cyrene and Alexandria and Cilicia and Asia. It's like, like just all around. This is not in Jerusalem, but these were people outside of Jerusalem who had, who had come and they were forcefully exerting their arguments against Stephen. Regarding this synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, this is the only time that this is mentioned in the Bible. That's probably a, a group, talking about a, a group of people descended from prisoners of a war that, that took place when the Romans um, took place with the Romans in, in 63 B.C., these people were captured as slaves. They, they settled then uh, on the outskirts of Rome near the, the Tiber River into this colony. And they took this name. We used to be prisoners of war. We were slaves for years. And now we're freed. We are the freedmen. But then at some point they were exiled from Rome and they came back to Jerusalem where they built a synagogue and worshipped the Lord together. These were the synagogue of, of the freedmen. They came and disputed what he was saying along with these other people from all these other locations. And I'm sure that Stephen felt ganged up on as it was one against the many. But it didn't matter. Stephen held his ground. You look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, right, Stephen was winning the argument. Though they had lots of people maybe shouting one thing at him or another. How do you respond to this? How do you respond to this? Stephen was with his wisdom and the spirit. Uh, responding appropriately that he shut them down, right? Stephen had an answer, and they didn't know how to answer his answer. Then they'd have another question, Stephen has an answer, and they wouldn't know how to answer his answer. It's because Stephen was wise. 
Because it says right there in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom of Stephen. And I'll tell you what, if you want to win an argument, the best way to win an argument is have truth on your side. It, if it's true, it's easier to defend. Right? Just because it just, it just, it's just going to sprinkle true. That's, that's where it is. It's easiest to win an argument that way. But, but further than that, right, the Holy Spirit was on his side. It's easiest to win an ar- argument when God, the Holy Spirit, is in you, on your side, giving you um, enlightenment as to what it is you ought to say. And so here he was, with wisdom and spirit, was confounding what they were saying. Um, but that didn't, that didn't change their hearts. Didn't, didn't change what they thought. So they, they didn't really think about what Stephen said and come to accept it. This is oftentimes with debates. You know, you have a formal debate between one person is one view, one person is the other view, and this you see and you watch back. These two people debate back and forth. At the end of the day, rarely are they ever persuaded. And rarely even is the argument. Well, the, the, the audience. The audience would see one side or the other side, and, and they're rarely changed. And so likewise here, they, they weren't changed and so when they were losing the debate, even though they saw it, they didn't change their, their beliefs, but instead they just changed their tactics. And so rather than trying to argue more with Stephen, that wasn't getting any place. They basically brought in those um, who would make some preposterous claims about Stephen. Look, look at the claim here in verse 11. They secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This is what I'm simply calling the instigation. Because that word comes up there in verse 11. They secretly instigated men. That is, they, they stirred them up right, to say these things about Stephen. But listen, knowing the character of the man, that he was of good repute, full of wisdom, full of the, the Holy Spirit, it's hard to see that Stephen would ever, ever, ever speak blasphemous words against the Lord. And so you see this and you see these people have been instigated against him. They're lying is basically what's happening here. It's not unlike what happened during the trial of Jesus. Maybe remember the, the high priests were trying to get him to, to be condemned. They're trying to convict him, but they couldn't. They brought on false witness after false witness after false witness after false witness. And finally, two witnesses had at least close to a semblance of the truth with an accusation that they could use against Jesus. When two of these came forward, Matthew 26, verse 61, these said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, that's all it took. Just these two witnesses that would say that. In a similar way here with Stephen, we see these men bringing in others who are falsely accusing Stephen of of blasphemy. And certainly that's what it took to secure a charge against Stephen. It, It took some men to come in to be willing to say whatever they wanted to say in order to capture Stephen and to destroy him. Let, let's just stop right here before we go into verse 12. Let's, let's just think about what's taking place. Here you've got Stephen his ministry, right? Doing good to people, healing them, casting out demons. And, and rather than accepting his good deeds, rather than accepting the things that he has, has done well, they didn't like his message so they disputed with him, and they brought false witnesses to try to destroy him. And I'll just say, you think about your own life as you think about witnessing and ministering and serving those in the world who don't know Jesus. I mean, we can be the kindest, gentlest people on the planet. We can be the most faithful people we are to friends, even to the unsafe friends. Just being the one who's there and dependable. We can, we can love and we can be an example of virtue. 
we can walk in righteousness, and we can be incredible supporters of those in need. We can give immensely of our time and resources. We can help those young women who experienced unwanted pregnancy at the Pregnancy Care Center. We support that. We can help that. We can be involved in that. We can care for those children whose family has fallen apart. We can just do that. We can house and feed those who have been destroyed their lives due to drugs and alcohol like they do at the Rockford Rescue Mission. Or you can help your neighbor in whatever, whatever place they are. And we can just extend ourselves and go way beyond. And yet when it comes to the gospel, it's not going to change. The world will still hate us. He was Stephen doing all these wonderful things and then bringing the gospel of life. And he was hated immensely. I mean, the Jews hated the message that Jesus brought. And there was no one kinder and more gentle than Jesus. And yet no one hated so much more as Jesus did. Because he, he brought a message of, of freedom. He brought a message basically of just, you just need to turn and admit your fault. And come and trust in me. And the kingdom is yours. But they didn't like right, being pointed out that they were at fault. And despite his, his, uh, his character and his love and his grace, they hated him. And so what makes us ever think that anything's different between the way they treat us or the way they're going to be convinced with us and Stephen and Jesus? I mean, Jesus was such a, uh, um, an example of that. I mean, if ever you're going to persuade someone through your love and, and through your kindness and compassion, it was them. We have the same gospel. We should be treated in the same way. And regardless of our exemplary character or a display of Christian commitment, apart from the grace of God, Right? We will not be accepted in our society. We'll face the scourge. Now, it may come in different forms in our day than in their day. I mean, in their day, it meant Stephen was going to be killed. He's going to be stoned to death, which we'll see at the end of, of chapter 7. And, and in our day, it might just be, well, ignore them or maybe try to silence them or maybe try to shame them. But still, the fundamental aspect of that is it will be rejected. If Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and grace and powers, doing wonders and signs, was rejected. He couldn't persuade his listeners. What, why, what hope do we have of our persuading others? And our hope is this. Our hope is in the Spirit of God who can persuade. I mean, Acts, the book of Acts is the acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving in a mighty way in the book of Acts. And that's where you see these people coming to, to faith in Jesus and it's interesting, I think the good, the good verse to keep in mind is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 in these things. that Paul described the preaching gospel like this. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Meaning that the non-Christian, right, when he hears spiritual things, it, it, comes, it comes to him like uh, him or her. It comes to him like, like peanuts, adults. When they hear it, but it says, right, Paul said, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him. He's not able to understand them. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And the only way that people understand is if the Holy Spirit comes, changes the heart, changes the mind, so that they will understand the gospel. And Stephen's a great example of what natural men will do. They'll hate the gospel and take vengeance upon the messenger. That's what we need to be prepared for as we 
speak forth any witness of, of Jesus at all. And that's what they do. If you look in verse 12, we see the arrest. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. This is mob violence at its best, right? When you, when you hate somebody, you want to destroy them, you just stir up the crowds. And uh, you take justice into your own hands. And that's what they did with Jesus, right? They hated him and wanted to destroy him. They stirred up the crowds. And so they went by night with swords and clubs out to get him in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest and bring him to the council. It's no different with Stephen. Mob violence apprehended him and brought him to the council. By the way, this is the same council that dealt with Jesus. This is the same council that dealt with Peter and John. This is the same council that dealt with all of the apostles. And now, here comes another follower of Jesus, Stephen, brought into this council as well. And, and every time, the, the punishment just got a little bit worse and worse. First of all, Jesus was crucified. Okay, that's the worst. And then his fault, they thought he was done with him. Okay, kill him. Then they thought, thought they were done. And then Peter and John came, and they merely rebuked him the first time. And, and then they brought in all the apostles, and they scourged him, and they beat him, them. And they then set them forth to go and say, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And then finally, spoiler alert, the logical progression is once you rebuke someone, once you beat them and they're still not listening to you, then kill them. And that's what Stephen did. He lost his life for speaking in the name of Jesus. But I move forward. Here we see the accusation then in verses 13 and 14. This is really the heart of the text. And this is really what sets up chapter 7, which we'll look at next week. We read this in verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs of, that Moses had delivered to us. And then we see the accusations against Stephen run along two lines. These two lines are super important. We'll see them next week in chapter 7. First of all, there's the line of the temple. And second is the line of the law. There's the temple and the law. In fact, it comes in verse 13, speaks about temple and law, and 14 speaks about temple and law. Look at verse 13. These false witnesses say this, He never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. The holy place, of course, is the, the holy of holies, which is where the, the temple was. It's like the, the inner place. And so when I talk about temple, mostly I'm talking about like the, the presence of God, the, the building, like the, the centrality of Jerusalem in this whole Jewish religion thing. That, that's the holy place. And, and then you have um, law. You have law. And, and the accusation says that Stephen never ceases to speak against this holy place and never ceases to speak against this law. We see these two topics brought up again in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. This place is where the council was convened. The council was there, right there on the temple grounds, right there where the Holy of Holies was, where the temple was, and he said he's going to destroy this place. Speaking about destroying the temple. And wasn't Stephen doing... Nothing more than quoting Jesus, certainly. Remember the story? Jesus was on the temple mount with his disciples during the Passion Week. And, and as they were leaving, the disciples right, were, were looking back at Jerusalem, what they, they saw, and they were marveling at, at, at the beauties of the, of the temple. 
and the whole temple area and the temple mount and just speaking to Jesus about how, how beautiful things were. And, and they were talking about how adorned it was and uh, how noble it was. And, and it, was, it was not unlike our reaction might be. is like if we go and visit Chicago and then we, we leave Chicago at night and look upon the skyline. And there you can see the Willis Tower and the, and the Hancock and all the other buildings that I don't know where they, what they are. But you see all the skyline and you say, wow, that is, that is beautiful. And that was the topic of conversation. And, and Jesus, rather than reveling in the beauty of these things, he said, Luke 21, verse 6, As for these things, you see these buildings? The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And, and there's the destruction of, of the temple that Jesus promised that that's going to happen. They accused Stephen of saying that. Stephen said that Jesus is going to destroy the temple. Right? This, is, this is before that, that actually happened. That did happen. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but Stephen also said that, that Jesus will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. The customs that Moses delivered is just another name for the law. So we see the temple that's going to be destroyed, he says, and the law which is going to be altered. That, that is the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. These are the customs of Moses. And, and what's difficult then about this accusation against Stephen is, is it's true. He certainly was probably talking about these buildings are going to be destroyed because Jesus said they were. And he's certainly talking about how the customs of law will be It'll be changed because less than 40 years after Stephen said these things, the Romans did indeed come and wipe out and destroyed the temple. And as Jesus said, that there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, one of the things that I, I love about archaeology at this point is the debate that carries on today about the exact location of the, the temple on the Temple Mount. If you go to Jerusalem today, there is this Temple Mount which is there during the days of Jesus. This is a huge, huge temple mount, 37 acres of property. We're talking 25 football fields. So this, this huge table, if you will, this big platform that is, is built up. Right now there's some Muslim mosques uh, right there on the ground. The, the, the Jewish temple, though, used to be on those grounds. And there's debate in archaeology about exactly where the temple was. Like I have an interesting slide here. This is like a, a Google shot. You can see like, like the whole, that's the whole outline of the, the Temple Mount there. And these five squares, whatever, if you will, represent five different views about where people think that the, the temple was. Um, you know, whether they, they think it's over there in the city of David or whether it's the center of it at the Al-Aska Mosque or whether the center of it right on the Dome of the Rock. They, they don't, nobody has any idea. You know why they don't have any idea where the Temple Mount was? Where the temple was? Because there's not one stone of evidence in archaeology that would tell you. Like, if you found one stone of the temple in any of those locations, you could at least wipe them out. And maybe, maybe you'd have questions about the adjustment of, of where things would exactly be. But there's no stone. There's no, there, there's no clue. There's no evidence because all the stones have been taken away exactly like Jesus foretold. Exactly like Stephen here was telling would come about. And that happened, of course, in A.D. 70 when the Romans came and sacked Jerusalem, totally obliterated the temple, trying to rid Jerusalem of the Jewish religion. And Stephen was prophesying what was totally true. It just hadn't happened yet. Further, Jesus did change the customs of Moses. 
That's totally true. Because, he said, I've not come to abolish the law. That's where it's not true. I didn't come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. And in fulfilling it, he's going to change the customs a little bit. Because he was the great sacrifice that all the Old Testament sacrifices were looking forward to. And with the sacrifices being gone, he abolished the sacrifice by, by becoming the sacrifice. With those being abolished, there's no longer a priesthood. But Moses talked about a priesthood. And Jesus is basically our high priest right now. You can read about all these things in the book of, of Hebrews. These are the accusations coming against him. Now, what's difficult about these accusations is up to this point, we have no idea what Stephen was teaching. I mean, we don't have any words about the teaching of Jesus. Uh, all we know, verse 8 even, he wasn't even teaching at all. It was just signs and wonders he was doing. But then we, we find out that they disputed with Stephen in verse 9. And there's this back and forth about his teaching in verse 10. But we don't know exactly what, what that's about. But here, here, here's the thing, though. I think that as we look at verse 13 and um, verse 14, these two um, lines of argument are the very lines of argument that go into chapter 7 that unlock for us what he's speaking about in chapter 7. He talks about, and we'll, we'll see this next week, but I want to give you a precursor to this, because you can read chapter 7, and all it sounds like is a history of Israel. But it's a history of Israel with a slant towards these two things, the temple and the law. And we talked about the temple, particularly he's talking about the, the presence of God. And the Jews thought that the presence of God was all wrapped up in coming here to the temple in Jerusalem. This is where we need to meet God. And so if you speak against the temple somehow, if you speak about God's spirit being among us in every place, they're like, no, 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 it's right here. The temple is where it is. And so to speak against that would be to speak against how God works. But Stephen in his sermon basically says, you know how God works? He works oftentimes far outside of Jerusalem. And uh, in fact, just consider the history of Israel and where Stephen, where, where God worked with Israel. In fact, when Abraham was called, he was in Mesopotamia. He wasn't in Jerusalem when he was called. He was in the land of the Chaldeans. You can read about that in verse 2. Um, and and uh, Abraham, in fact, was promised an inheritance. When he came in, he never even got any portion of the land, not even a foot's length. Chapter 7 and verse 5. Even the patriarchs themselves, they didn't inherit the land. They were exiled to Egypt. The best they got is that they were buried in the land. They died in Egypt, but they were carried back and their bones were laid in the land. That's, that's all they got. They're just buried there. They don't even have the land, much less than the Temple Mount, much less than the sacred place. When God instituted his covenant, it was instituted in Mesopotamia, like modern-day Iraq, where it was instituted. And then even Moses, right? This great leader of Israel. You might think, well, at least God spoke to him in Israel. No, he was in, he was in Egypt, risen up then, anointed. He was going to be the one who was going to deliver them. They reject him, and he goes to Midian. And he's in Midian for 40 years. And uh, that's when God appeared to him. When he was in Midian, not when he was in Jerusalem. So if you think this temple is the big place, the worship of God, you need to just think about your history. Abraham, Moses, God worked with them outside of Israel. Even when Solomon finally built the temple, Isaiah made it clear, it's not about the temple. Acts 7, 49 and 50. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? 
Right? It's not here. I, I don't need this little house to, to have my rest. So it's not about the temple. And see, these Jews were so concerned about the temple's holy place where God meets us, they, they missed the fact that even Old Testament history shows that God meets with his people oftentimes far outside of Israel. He worked with his people in different places. And in terms of the second theme, we got the temple theme, we got the law theme. In terms of the law, uh, the second theme of Stephen's sermon is all about the law. The, the, the Jews prided themselves in keeping the law. But Stephen says, you guys never kept the law in the first place. You guys have been wicked people from the start. They rejected Joseph, chapter 7, verse 9. They rejected Moses, chapter 7, verse 27. Even the giver of the law, they rejected him and hated him and spurned him and despised him. You who keep the law, what about the giver of the law? Did did you even respect him? They didn't. Instead, they they chose to worship idols, chapter 7, verse 41, and then they even rejected the Messiah. This is where it comes down in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. This, by the way, is the first place in Stephen's sermon where he gets to even mentioning Jesus at all. He's just dealing with these accusations about the temple is where God dwells and, and works. No, he doesn't do that. The law, well, you guys have, have hardly kept the law. You've spurned the law. Anytime there was a prophet came, you persecuted and you killed him. You killed those even who announced before him the coming of the righteous one whom you've now betrayed and murdered. It, it is interesting here that that the whole pattern we've seen so far in the book of Acts, and I've pushed for you, right, is to talk about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the appearances of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus, right? Just take people right through the life of Jesus. It's a great place to go. But you see here that Stephen's not even following that pattern. So it should be a help to you that in being a witness, you don't have this formulaic thing that you need to say. Just respond to what people are talking to you about. I mean, and I had opportunity this this past week to speak with someone about Matthew 25. Things were coming up about my life, and I was just telling them about it. And Jesus said, you know, to the extent that you care for the least of these, you've done it unto me. And I just got to share that about the, the ministry and the heart that Jesus has. And, you know, I didn't talk about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. But, like, Stephen didn't necessarily talk about that either. But I was just speaking about truth about that to someone. And, of course, this person kind of replied, okay, that's good. You know, he's living his life. I'm trying to give out my life. And it's just exactly like Stephen trying to pour out my life for others. And it's like, okay, it's good for you. I'll I'll drink my beer is what he was doing at the time. So I'll, I'll do that. And so... Um, not, not a lot there, but just gives you encouragement. Just whatever you're learning, whatever you're reading, whatever you're experiencing, just share that with people like Stephen did. This was his message about the law and about the temple. And finally, we see this last word, radiance. This is, this is just the response of how G, uh, Stephen, even being accused of these things, he hasn't even had a chance to speak yet. They have railed against him in verses 13 and 14. He never ceases to speak against this place, this holy place in the law. 
He said, Jesus is going to destroy this place. He's going to change the customs of Moses. Like, this is him. And, and right when he's being accused, and he's standing right before the whole Sanhedrin, who are there, we see even chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest is there. And the high priest said, well, are these things so? And then he launches into his sermon. Stephen is right there, even while being accused, just consider the radiance of his face. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I think, I think Stephen was as, uh, as wise as a serpent, but as innocent as a dove. And so likewise, that's how we ought to be when, when people maybe confront us and come after us. Right? So the gentle answer that turns away wrath. And Stephen, even in his face, even when people were, were railing against him, he had a smile on his face. Patiently waiting for the opportunity then to speak to them. A little bit like Polycarp. When the policeman came, he was welcoming them and he gave them food. And Stephen wasn't in the spot to give them food here, but he certainly had his, his countenance was communicating much to them. And so even as people speak against you, right, be joyful like the, the, uh, the apostles who, who went from the place of even being beaten rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so even when people are speaking against you in a bad way, maybe accusing you, just consider the, the radiance of the face of Stephen, who was, was merely taking it in. He knew that his time would come, and we'll see his time next week. So let's just pray here, and then we'll transition to Lord's Supper.